Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Darielle Snipes, a multimedia journalist at Cleveland Metropolitan School District. It is February 17th and you're with a virtual City Club Forum. Today is Founders Day for the Cleveland Public Library. The institution celebrates the 152nd anniversary of its founding with a renewed plan to provide spaces and places for Clevelanders in the pursuit of self-advancement and self-improvement. The conversation couldn't be more timely. For the last few months, it has felt like the country and the world is both on fire and at a tipping point when it comes to confronting racism, white supremacy, the social economic and structural inequities that have greatly affected African-Americans and communities of color for decades. Today, we'll talk with Felton Thomas, the CEO and executive director of the Cleveland Public Library, about the library's efforts to build an equitable society. He is joined by Jeffrey Patterson, the chief executive officer and safety director for the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, and Danielle Sidnor, president of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. She is also founder of CEO of We Win Strategies Group. Together, they'll discuss the historical and racial inequities in Cleveland and how their respective institutions are working to usher in a new era of justice. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them at 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. That is at the City Club. And we'll try to work them in. So let's begin with the conversation. And Felton, first off, I would like to say happy Founders Day. Thank you, Darielle. I appreciate you taking the time to, to work with us on this. Danielle, appreciate you and, and AACP working with us. And I, I, of, of course, my friend, Jeffrey Patterson. Thank you and the, your, your, your friends over at CMHA. We appreciate you being a part of this for us and working with us on our Founders Day. So Felton, I wanna start with you and a cleveland.com op-ed on Valentine's Day titled Cleveland Public Library aims at a strong future for our community. You talked about a new era where we all succeed, an era in which we work on collaboration, not in silos, and an era uh, where justice exists for all. When people think of the library, they may not, they may think about checking out books about, but they don't really think about justice when it comes to the library. So they might think about checking out a book about mm -hmm. justice. So um, why do you want to take the library in this direction and why now? So you, you make a great point, Darielle. I mean, I, two years ago at the 150th anniversary, I asked the community a question um, at the City Club. And the question was, what's the tallest building in the city of Cleveland? And uh, after people gave all their answers, I said, of course, it's the library. We have the most stories. Right, and it's so it's such a like old story kind of joke around libraries. But when it what it really goes to is the fact that everyone really can tie into what the libraries are. Right, they, they you know if you ask um, a few polls show that seventy five percent of our community um, see uh, uh, um, libraries as related to books, and that's what people think about when they think about libraries. They think about books. But we do so much more for our community than that, right? We are a space in which people can come in and get um, access to technology. We are a space where people can come in and connect and have great conversations. We're a space where we bring in authors to talk to people, to enlighten people. We're a space in which we uh, in, um, inspire our community to with the arts and bringing in our community partners in the arts. So what we wanted to do was really introduce what we are as a library. We were so much more than books that we wanted people to see that. So when we started thinking about how we were going to move forward, we actually had an author, um, Brian Stevenson, come in. And Brian Stevenson talked to us about justice, right? You know, the author of No Mercy. Um, and he, he, one of the things he said was this quote, right? The opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And what he meant by that, and I had to, I, I really had to, a chance to talk to him privately about this. And he said, Tony, libraries are so important in this because justice, in my meaning, is fairness and opportunity. And no better place for in every one of our communities for people to find opportunity than in their libraries. And so I, when we decided we were going to have this conversation for our Founders Day, 
I really wanted to start the theme around the idea of justice really being fairness and opportunity. That's why I'm so happy to have Danielle and Jeffrey here because both of their institutions are dedicated to a different type of fairness and, and uh, opportunity for our communities. Danielle, with fairness in the legal and, and uh, field and fairness for opportunities for our, for our African-American community. Jeff, in fairness in, in housing to make sure people have an opportunity to have affordable housing. So there are so many of those type of things that we do that we need to start to see justice not more from the standpoint of the way people have always seen it. We want to make sure that people see it from the standpoint of it's important for us to provide our communities with opportunities for fairness in, uh, um, and in their community so that they can become the people who we all want them to be. And so also in the op-ed, you talked about breaking down silos and partnering with organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League and the CMHA, just to name a few. So, I mean, what is your vision when it comes to breaking down these silos and partnering with these institutions? So this is something that we do really well already. But what we want to make sure that the community understands is that we're doing these collaborations, but that we can kind of expand those collaborations for our community to see that um, we can have much more impact on our communities when we're all working together, right? So this is an opportunity for the library to step up. I think what we are kind of saying is that we have been a great library, right? We are one of the top five libraries in the country for the past five years. We know we are a great library, but the community in the city of Cleveland needs us to be much more right now. When you look at the fact that we're number one in poverty for children, number one in poverty for, um, you know, for uh, adults in poverty, um, for poverty for adults, number three for seniors, this doing the same thing, even if you're doing it well, makes no sense whatsoever. So, we have to partner with our collaborators who are doing great stuff and be able to use our uh, platform as an institution that has a um, building in every one of our neighborhoods to introduce them to that. That way, if, if there are things that NAACP or NAACP is doing in their communities, uh, doing in one community, we need to see if we can bring it to another one of our neighborhoods through our libraries, right? There are a lot of um, Jeff's CMHA um, uh, spaces are in, uh, throughout the community, and we partner with a lot of them in all of our neighborhoods um, throughout the city of Cleveland. So how do we do that and do that better is what we're looking at. I hear you. So Danielle and Jeffrey, what do you think about when you know Felton's calling you up and saying, hey, you know, we want to talk about a new era of justice and we want to take action and not just when it comes to checking out books or teaching someone how to use the computer. They want to, he want, you know, the library wants to step up on, on your level of action and make sure to make a difference in the community. So I think that, um, excuse me, the first thing that I think about is the reality of how much, how many intersections all of our organizations have in terms of the individuals that are most likely to reach out for some sort of support or assistance or, uh, you know, who, who are in need of information. And so what we believe at the NAACP is that many of the underlying issues in our communities that we're attempting to solve are economic in nature. And so individuals that have the opportunity to take advantage of resources at the library, I mean, people call it the People's University, um, are putting themselves in a position to be able to have more financial upward mobility. We know children that go and get meals, you know, in the summertime when school is out, we have individuals that are using resources to apply for jobs or to learn additional information. So I think the fact that the library and not only providing those services, but stepping out front and saying, we wanna ensure there's equity, there is justice in how information is accessible and delivered, and then use their platform to just spread the word of organizations like the NAACP and CMHA is just, I think, really impactful because all of us have our own networks, but it's important that we are cross-collaborating, cross-pollinating information so that the community is aware that when NAACP puts something out, if the library is also sharing it, the library is considered a trusted resource and people can trust the information that's coming out of them. And I think in a year like 2021, coming off of all of the misinformation we have over the last several years, it is supremely important that we have resources that we can trust to provide us with good information. And, and I agree. And I, I think over, over the years, 
Um, the Felton and the uh, folks at the library have really done, I think, a phenomenal job of just kind of re, um, reimagining themselves. You know, so, you know, you're in my generation, you know, you think of the library and you go back thinking about the, the Dewey Decimal System and all that stuff. And now you go into the library and it's a place that does so many different things and provides so many um, different opportunities to folks in our community. You know, uh, the library for some uh, some of the folks that uh, reside in our properties, it, it becomes a place where you can go to have access to be able to uh, utilize the Internet to be able to get um, additional work done and things like that for folks who are looking for employment opportunities and things like that. It's a place where you could go ahead and do that. It's also a place where people can go and, and have interaction with people when it's in a non-COVID environment. And I think, you know, the library stepping up and really um, it has a strong voice and it has the ability to uh, bring others in. And so I appreciate and have a tremendous amount of respect for the leadership that they're showing by taking this uh, role as a convener to host these types of conversations and to continue to build on these types of collaborations and partnerships. Yeah, it's a great, great way to, to obviously bring justice for everyone. And Felton, you know, you know, kind of piggybacking off what Jeffrey said, you know, it's a place where people go. Well, this pandemic has caused many organizations such as the library to rethink how they do their day-to-day -day operations. And the library was a place people went for so many different resources, but because of restrictions and social distancing, the library hasn't been able to serve its community in that way. Um, so can you just talk about how you guys have had to pivot during this pandemic to still serve the community? Yeah, it's been, it's been really difficult. I've always said that the library is, fortunate to be a 24-7 organization. People can go online and be able to visit us anytime they want to. But we know that a lot of people are require, uh, require being able to walk through our doors. And that's been very difficult through, through COVID. But what we've learned through that, I think it's going to be benefit us as we move forward post-COVID. We've learned that there are a lot of things that we can work with our community to make them better as far as understanding technology so that um, God forbid we have another instance like this, that we are not, you know, found that find ourselves with kids and parents uh, and grandparents in front of us crying because they can't help their children, right? We should never be in an uh, instance and we, we need our seniors to be able to make sure that they um, are able to be able to get their medicine online because that's where the tech world is now, moved, the, the world for health um, medicine is moving where the, you know, our seniors are going to be doing online um, appointments with their doctors um, in the future. So one of the things that we've learned is that we're gonna to have to do a lot of outreach to our community on those type of things, going into people's homes, being willing to um, share our, our skills and abilities for our community with them in places that may not be, may not be the way we've always seen it. Um, we've learned how to do a lot of things outside right um, we've out learned how um, to do a lot of things um, through old school ways of doing things i remember in the 80s when we used to do dial a story for people we went back to <laughs> people being able to call up and hear a story on the phone right those are things we've learned and will take forward with us um, post-covid that will make it easier for us to, to kind of start to transition our community so that they're better with the technology that will move their lives forward I know you said that you were thinking about this for some time, but does, is the, did the, was the pandem pandemic the catalyst of why you feel that the library can no, be, no longer be neutral when it comes to social issues in the Cleveland area? I think what the pandemic did was really accelerate our thoughts. I mean, I think we all saw the inequities that, that came along with it. Um, you know, we, uh, even five years ago, I would drive by our libraries um, at night, and I would see people outside of our libraries, kids outside at 10 o'clock at night um, doing their library, doing their homework in front of the libraries because they didn't have internet at home. And, you know, five years later, we're still at that point. And so we had to boost our Wi-Fi in all of our buildings so that, you know, we could get them into some of the homes in on the streets that they were on. So, that, you know, so we could have fewer, fewer people doing those type of things. But you know, we see that a lot of the issues that we faced five years ago have not has not changed, and we got to do more and use this as an accelerant to move that forward. 
So I know that you've said that you don't want the library to be neutral anymore. So what does that mean? What is, what is, how does that look like to you to where you're not neutral? Is that you going out with Danielle and doing marches? Um, you know, what does that mean? So, um, you know, as much as I like going out and marching with Danielle, it, it's not my own personal choice as much as it is for the library. It's about us deciding that we are going to, um, uh, make some choices that are difficult choices from a library standpoint, right? Our first writers and readers are going to be with Heather McGee and Jelani Cobb around policing, right? And this is going to be a really difficult and challenging conversation that we're going to have. Um, but there should be no holes barred because, right, we can't be worried about if somebody um, thinks this isn't right for a library to have that conversation. We've got people dying in the streets, right? And, you know, it's time for us to think through what are their answers going to be for how we can help. Um, and so we should help. And Jeffrey and, and Danielle, I mean, you guys, your organizations have been outspoken for, for years, for decades about the inequities that have happened in Cuyahoga County and Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. Um, and now here's Felton and the library wanting to have a voice in, in voicing these concerns what what what's what's some of the advice you would give the library um about doing this because sometimes when you put yourself out there you get unwarranted criticism um about the about the things that you say or the choices that you make as an organization so what would you what some advice you would say give to him so i think the um the first thing is i appreciate the fact that all of us have the ability to demonstrate advocacy in different ways uh, the NAACP, yes, is known for direct action, but we also meet with legislators, we meet with decision makers, we meet with grassroots uh, organizers. And so being able to have partners at multiple levels and realizing that there is an audience, there's a group of stakeholders that believe in the library. And so an outreach from Felton regarding an issue um, is just as impactful as him and 50 other members of the library joining us in a public you know, demonstration of sorts. What I think the most important thing about advocacy is being willing to know that you're not gonna be friends with everybody all the time. And that there are going to be times when you take positions that make individuals or organizations or people that have generally aligned with you as friends uncomfortable, but being able to know that you're doing the right thing and getting people to the place that they need to be is really what I encourage all organizations that are trying to make the statements that they put out in 2020 more of an action-oriented item because it is very frustrating to see the number of people that had you know statements saying Black Lives Matter, but then when you're looking for the action, you haven't seen anything you know since the publishing of a letter or signing on to a letter, and so. We're just encouraging everybody to activate those statements in real ways and in uh, sustained ways because we do not have time for things that are temporary. The issues that are, you know, um, are really our com communities are impacted by our long term in nature. And so we need sustained, committed partners that are going to be in this for the long haul. And just kind of uh, piggybacking on what uh, Danielle said in terms of partnerships and, and, and collaborations, you know, um, it wasn't too long ago. It may have been um, probably a little bit over a year ago that, you know, I was looking at uh, trying to do some uh, improvements and starting to discuss revamping our housing choice voucher program. And I actually reached out to Danielle and Danielle came to, to my office and we had a very good conversation about concerns and things that she saw and, and things that uh, she wanted to bring to my attention. And I think, you know, it's that willingness to have to use the different organizations as sounding boards, as uh, places where you can get a true perspective of what's going on. It may not necessarily be that you accept or agree, but it is things that you need to at least be aware of. The other thing that I, I would uh, say to, uh, to uh, Felton is that I think sometimes as institutions, there are not limitations, but there are things that we operate within that others do not operate within. There are things that we have to consider that sometimes those who are on the outside may not be aware of. So you have to be able to kind of listen to the things that are being said, but then also be able to take those things and find how you could work those things within the system uh, that you're in until you can uh, be able to change the system uh, as you go forward. 
And I just wanted to piggyback on something that Danielle said, and I'll, I'll throw this out to the panel, but you know, this past summer, you know, huge movement to get people to the polls and standing up for Black Lives Matter with signs and letters, like Danielle said, people putting signs in their front yards. You know, now it's winter time. And as she said, things have kind of cool have cooled down and people are not really taking the action that they said they would, whether it's an individual or it's um, an organization. So how do you keep the community energized and keep um, everyone on this so that their change can happen here in Cleveland? I think it's, it's important for us to keep having convenings and just keep talking about the issues that we're facing. They're not going away, right? Um, and what we need to do is continue to have those conversations and start to prepare ourselves for when these issues come back again, right? Um, so I think when you, you look at some of the issues that we're facing, whether they're economic in, um, in nature, in our communities, um, and as we come out of COVID, with the funding that's going to be provided from the state to um, communities across the, the country and the state, um, who's talking about what what funding is going to be found here in the city of Cleveland? What, what are what are, what's going to be done around that? Um, and I think one of the places that people can go and feel comfortable and safe and having that conversation is a library, right? And so we're trusted in that way. Um, I, we, we've always been neutral in the sense that we don't pick a side, but picking a side of whether we get money or don't get money is not really a, 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 you know, a real choice there. It's more of, you know, how do we work to make sure that um, the city of Cleveland and our neighborhoods are, are receiving the funds they need to, to, to develop themselves and move forward? Yeah, and Dario, I would add to uh, what Felton said and just thinking about the fact, when you look at statistics, the city of Cleveland has some of the highest functional illiteracy rates. And so when we think about where funding does go and we think about uh, how sometimes we do so much work to convince people in communities that establishments like the library are just as vital as a hospital. They're just as vital as you know many of the other things that we deem as so important and necessary. If we want to see our communities become safer, we have to have people that have financial upward mobility because individuals with resources go to school, they go to the doctor, they eat better food. All of those things that we know are you know social determinants of health, and not just in the health of your body, but your overall mental health and well-being. And so I really hope that as we're looking at strategies for the future, when we start to talk about budgets for things like police and safety forces, we also compare that to budgets for things like libraries. Because if we had more resources in our communities that people felt good about, not just I have a free program and you should come to it, but are we co-building these kinds of opportunities with community so they take advantage of them and we all become better. I went to the library as a child at you know, the fourth of six kids who grew up in Section 8 housing. And so I always give a nod to, to Jeff and the work that he's doing and also recognizing if it wasn't for early literacy, I wouldn't be where I am today. So can, if I can jump on that, because that was, might be the best commercial for a library <laughs> funding that I've heard in a long time. Thank you. Jeff. I won't charge you for that, Phil. I know. <laughs> all right. All right. I, I find some way to hook you up anyway. But <laughs> To a point that I want to add to that, and I think it's really, really important um, that we kind of uh, understand this, that kids up to the age of eight or nine learn to read, right? But then the kids read to learn. And somewhere for our kids in our Cleveland community and, and many in the African-American community, when they learn to read, they don't love to read. And what we have to do and what we are really working on is making sure that we're providing our kids with culturally relevant books and things that they love to read so that when they get older and they have to read to learn, as Daniel spoke about, they will be prepared. There's, she's right. There's, there's statistics saying that as many as 67% uh, of the city of Cleveland are functionally illiterate, meaning they, they read up to a seventh grade level. And that is because we haven't inspired them to love reading and continue to love reading because when they do, they will make themselves economically, uh, provide an economic um, development space for them to move, continue to, to develop themselves. And then I think as it relates to, to uh, adults, you know, I know that um, this past uh, year, 
uh, Danielle and I were um, a part of a organization, um, Leadership Ohio. And during that, um, one of our projects was to try to figure out how to increase engagement um, throughout our community in terms of the census, as well as getting folks uh, registered to vote. And Danielle was able to bring um, and partner with us and bring some of her resources to really trying to help uh, get a certain, get a new level of civic engagement. And I think that that's what we have to do, but it has to be sustained. It has to be that I may not necessarily, this may not be my issue, but it is an issue. And we need to discuss this issue and we need to understand these issues. And we just have to be engaged because if you're not engaged, then you're not going to be able to make the changes that need to be made. So I think, you know, through these types of convenings, through these types of partnerships. And while I think the three of us have uh, had some uh, great experiences in being partners, I think we also are partners with a lot of other organizations. There's a lot of connectivity in this community with a lot of different organizations. We just have to continue to build on that as we go forward and use our, our, our forms and our, our positions as uh, uh, mechanisms to be able to kind of get that word out. So Felton, um, you know, as also as a part, and we're almost running out of time or my time for my question. So I just wanted to get this one in, but um, as a part of the vision shift and the direction of the library um, and focusing on a new area of justice, um, you know, you have a facilities master plan as well. And the goal is to either renovate or build you know, new libraries. Where do you stand on your facilities master plan? So we're really lucky that um, our community, um, well, I, I think we earned their respect for the community and they supported us in a levy um, in 2017 to touch every one of our buildings in the city of Cleveland. So we are now in the midst of building three this year um, and we'll continue to start building and, and finish building a number in our first phase in 2022. Um, and then we go on and build and touch every one of our buildings throughout the next five years. I mean, and that's obviously important to make sure that the that all the libraries, you know, bring in the resources and the programming in, in all the neighborhoods. Yeah, I think and what we want to do is really um, rethink our libraries in the way that they can be more of convening spaces, spaces where we're going to have a lot of technology and things of that nature for everybody to use. But one of the things I think we have found from from during the period of COVID, and I think we'll see this um, coming out of it is that people like being around people, right? We want to connect with folks. And um, the library is one of those great spaces for people to connect. And we are creating in all of our buildings, nooks for groups of people, whether they're small groups or larger groups, find ways to connect, to convene, and to create uh, great ideas around how they're going to change their neighborhoods. Daryl, if I could add one thing to uh, what Felton said, you know, and it's it goes to the point of collaboration. As Felton is, is starting his master planning um, at at his uh, libraries, you know, CMHA is also engaged in our 2045 initiative to uh, refurbish and improve properties throughout um, our community, as well as you know, look at doing master plans in, in certain areas. So as we kick off our master plan in the Cedar area, which is uh, and uh, Cedar Central area, which is near the uh, Marion Sterling Library. As we look at what we're doing in a Woodhill community with our Choice Neighborhood uh, Initiative, which is, of course, uh, near his uh, Harvey Rice Library and that community, we want to be able to make sure that as we build communities, we also look at the library as a source and an amenity in that community and make sure that we can uh, partner on programming and activities that are going to um, make the people who are in that community have a, a, a added resource, an added benefit in a library. So it's that collaboration and those discussions and the planning process that I think will help us down the road. Wonderful. Well, I'm all done with my questions. My time is up. So we will now go to the questions of the community. Um, so again, if you have questions for Jeffrey Patterson, Danielle Sidnor, and Felton Thomas, please text them at 330-541-5794. Again, that is 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. Again, that's at the City Club, and we will definitely try to work them in. And I do have a couple of questions already, so I'm going to 
go to my phone because that's how we're doing it in the tech world, right? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, Felton. Oh, wait, hold on. So, um, Felton, the library under your leadership was one of the first community institutions to become involved in helping individuals access information about the consent decree. Oh, hold on. Uh, does do you anticipate any involvement with reform um, when it comes to criminal justice? You know, it's that uh, the criminal justice issue has been one of those issues that we've been really working with um, from our last strategic plan. We really felt like there was a lot of work that needed to be done with folks who were returning back into our community um, and um, with the criminal justice space as it is right now. And so. I know uh, we've been working with NAACP and United Way that are doing a lot around the consent decree. Uh, I'm going to turn this over to Danielle. Of course. Uh, Danielle, because she's been doing so much work on this. We've really just been making sure that the community knows about this work. But the work that she's been doing has been phenomenal. That's right, Danielle, you just had a panel, you were on a panel just talking about the consent decree, especially with the Cleveland Police Department going on six years. So, I mean, where, where, where does everything stand with that? Yeah, so Daryl, I think that the uh, most important thing is out of the consent decree, the word community was one of the most used words in the actual document. And so what we have attempted to do in partnership with the United Way is bring more conversations to the community and allow the community to provide direct feedback to the parties that are involved in the consent decree. And so January, we kicked off our series. It's going to be over a course of 10 months because it's such a... Uh, heavy topic that we did not want to disserve the community by trying to jam it all into one conversation. So every month for the next eight months, we will have a conversation around a different topic. This past month, we just talked about use of force and vehicle pursuits. We're going to have sessions where we honor the families that have uh, individuals that have lost their lives at the hand of police. We're going to talk about mental health for police officers, a number of things. And so really our goal is to make sure the community is aware of the current status of the decree and that also we really hold leadership accountable, but partner with them to make the improvements necessary in the department to get to safer communities, which is the ultimate goal of the decree in the first place. Do you think that the police department has improved over the six years? Obviously they, they're not off the, 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 the decree, so obviously they haven't improved enough, but where do you stand? You know, I think that what we've seen is that there have been improvements and I would be uh, unfair to say nothing has changed, but candidly not enough. And I think that the community's voice and attention to this matter will help them accelerate the improvement in the areas that they're con continuing to still work towards. Great, Jeffrey, um, I had this question uh, is for you, but everybody can answer, but um, please address what is being done to combat inequities in housing in Cleveland. The example that was given is um, a house for sale on the east side, um, you know, is sold for half the price of the same house on the west side. Well, I, I think uh, globally, I, I think that there is a need to uh, put that issue out in front. And I, hopefully as we move forward, there'll be more opportunities for people to see what those inequities are understand why those inequities are occurring and then put together a plan to address those inequities by investing in um, the communities where uh, those inequities are occurring. For example, when I look at the master plans that we're looking at within some of our sites and some of our developments, our goal is to improve uh, the housing uh, that we have in those communities, but not necessarily just uh, concentrate the, those units, but to be able to spread those units uh, throughout uh, the community. So I, I just think that we need to make sure that factually we have uh, our information together in terms of statistically where the breakdowns are. And then we need to put together a plan to aggressively go in and try to work with neighborhood organizations like Cleveland Neighborhood Progress um, and working with the different foundations and other organizations to put together a plan to aggressively go in and try to improve those communities. Danielle, I mean, I know that you've you're also fighting for that with uh, you know with housing and, and affordable housing because affordable housing can be very you know it, it it varies between you know how much your income is, but for some a working class person buying a house might be out of reach because the housing market is just too hot right now and the prices are too high. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that when you look at um, the disparity between values on the east side and west side, there's also a correlation to the amount of investment that's happened um, in some of the anchor institutions in those communities and just other opportunities for quality housing stock. We have a lot of affordable housing in the city of Cleveland, but when you actually look for quality affordable housing is when you start to you know, have issues. And so as we think about future strategies around uh, mixed income communities and neighborhoods, which again, you think about the work that um, Jeffrey and his team are doing and thinking about how people get access to vouchers, where affordable housing is located throughout the city and throughout the county, it really starts to address some of those concerns about if I bought a house in 1970 on the east side of Cleveland, it probably is worth the same or less than it was, you know, back then. And so we think about the number of our, um, you know, elders who own property on the east side of Cleveland. They're not able to use it for retirement or to send their kids to college and do all start a business and all of the other things that, again, lead to upward economic mobility. And so um, as we go into this 2021 mayoral race, I think that that's going to be a hot topic. And so even though I don't live in the city, I do a lot of work in the city. So I'm very interested to see the strategies that will come out of leaders who are looking to serve in the mayoral seat. And I think the same for the county of working together to figure out how we invest in the east side of Cleveland, but also don't do a significant amount of displacement. Because unfortunately, that's sometimes what you see is values go up, but everybody who was willing to stay in the neighborhood when nobody else would now have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Dariel, can I jump in right there? Because I, I really, uh, you know, Daniel kind of hit a spot on where we are talking about the fact that one of the keys for us in not only providing opportunities is to make sure there's fairness within those opportunities. And so when you look at what is the kind of basis for a number of the symptoms that we're dealing with is the fair, fact that there is an unfairness in the quality of housing. There's an unfairness in the quality of, of healthcare. There's an unfairness in a, a variety of, of things that are being provided to everyone. And so what we need to do is make sure that not only if there is opportunity, because in some cases there are opportunities for folks, as Daniel was talking about, there is opportunities for housing. There's not opportunities for fair housing. And that's why, you know, with Jeff here, we're talking about how do we make sure that our community knows about how they can find things that are going to be fair for them, right? And just for them. And so that's what we're going to be really working on. And I think things such as, you know, source of income legislation, you know, uh, going through and looking at ways to uh, draw attention to the need to make sure that people have the right to be able to live in uh, different communities and are not arbitrarily discriminated against by the color of their skin, their income level or, or whatnot. Understand. Well, I look forward to seeing all that great work that you guys are doing. Um, and then this is a question for all three of you. It says all three organizations have a good record supporting returning citizens. Do they have any plans to work with the governor and his new pardon program? If not, will they consider some appropriate involvement? I cannot say that I'm well versed enough um, on the program, but you know, as we're continuing to build out leadership in 2021 for the NACP, we're bringing on a new executive director very soon. I'll be announcing. I won't say who it is. Mm -hmm. but they've done a lot of work in reentry, and so um, I'll be excited to be able to do more in that space because we'll have an expert that's at the helm um, of our organization as well. Can't wait for that. And I think we have in a, in a past um, worked a lot uh, with different areas of, of government to try to give uh, folks um, the opportunity to reenter into uh, society. So uh, I think I'm like Danielle, I'm not as well versed in, in that initiative, but I would be willing to uh, have a conversation to get an understanding of it because I think that uh, giving people that type of opportunity is very important. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's an area that the governor would, no one ever seems to think the library has a role in many of these types of things, but we do a lot of work with folks who are returning citizens, a lot of work around literacy issues. Right? So we have our own kind of a basic literacy program that we work through a program called Aspire. We also do a lot around digital literacy. We also do a lot of, of training around um, you know, digital literacy so that to, to make sure people can, you know, fill out applications and, and do those type of things. 
So I, I think uh, the library is a natural space, but you know, we'll, we'll see if the governor comes. And so also um, from uh, someone else, a viewer, um, it can be said that local institutions play a role in the systematic racial issues of the community. How can organizations who are part of the status quo be pushed to pursue things differently if there is a possibility that they are a part of the problem? So not, not you three, but other organizations. You know, I think sometimes it takes, um, again, the, the community has such an important role in all of this because institutions want to have relationships with the community, whether it's elected officials, it, you know, banks, corporate, everybody, the community is some kind of way, a partner, a client, a customer. And so if the community takes issue with how an organization is taking stances on systemic racism or other, you know, matters, it will pay attention to what the community has to say. And so what I think we all should have learned from 2020 and what we have to do a better job of in 2021 is collectively unifying our voices to make sure people understand where we stand. And if we don't do that, uh, organizations generally are not running to make changes because they cost money. There's all types of things. And it's, do my, am I alienating a certain portion of my stakeholders? You know, who's going to benefit from this? Who isn't? So we, as the people, have to do the job of continuing to push people to do the right thing. And, and I think, too, that there are so many things that I think that uh, folks are able to collaborate on. And I think there are so many things that people are actually able to get done. And there are some times where there are some things that that may, for whatever reason, may not get worked out, may not get done. Um, I think we need to pay a lot more attention to and highlight a lot of the things that do get done, a lot of the partnerships that do work out. And then let's focus on those other things that aren't quite moving at the pace we want to let's see who else we can bring in or what else we can do to try to accelerate those. But there are a lot of things that do I think work a lot of partnerships and collaborations that do work that I think we ought to uh, spend some time highlighting those as well. Yeah, and, and I will just add to that. I think some of the foundations have done a, a, a better job of making sure that they rec um, folks who are seeking funding recognize they're not going to get funding unless they change their mindset. Um, I think we're getting to a place, uh, uh, maybe a tipping point or an inflection point where the folks who are pushing back or resisting changing are recognizing they're going to get ran over in this tidal wave of things happening um, and that uh, their organization's um, livelihood or uh, uh, sustainability is built off of them changing or their or the funders are not going to fund them any longer. And this question is for the three of you again, and it's from Twitter. Part, oops, I lost it. Hold on. That's what happens when you're getting text while you're reading text. So my apologies. Uh, part two of the PBS series on the Black Church and the intersection with current social justice is expected to air this evening. What would the panelists urge local faith leaders to consider as a part of the local efforts to pursue and implement impactful policy change? You know, it's so funny. I um, didn't get a chance to, to watch it yet, but I was in my family group chat. There was so much dialogue and friends about it and just reading up on just kind of the um, the whole idea and concept of it is that we have to be able to have a better understanding of the role that white supremacy played and how the black American church looks today, traditions that we uphold, and then also understanding the value of, I believe, that coming togetherness, where it was a place that the person who couldn't read to the person who was the doctor we're all in the same church together. And so you think about the opportunity to align around issues and to move causes forward, it was a place of convening. And so I think we have to continue to understand the value of that in our communities as we've all migrated to different belief systems and faiths and you know ways of deciding um, to, to share our faith, there is still substantial value in the faith community and the ability to pull people together to especially align around issues that are so important to the community. Did anybody else see the first part? No, no I, didn't, I didn't either. I really <laughs> do want to see it though. It looks great. Right. I'm pretty sure it's on demand, but what do you think about faith leaders and the churches and what role they play with um, this endeavor? 
Well, I think they play a, an important role. And traditionally, um, they have played, I, I think, a significant role in, in, in the in the movement and just in terms of, you know, what goes on in, in, in different communities. I think one of the challenges that I think we have that we really have to focus on is I think we have to go back and understand our history a lot more. I think a lot of things were lived experiences that people had or one step removed. And now we're getting to uh, generations where you're three, four, five steps removed from things that, you know, some of us may have felt or our parents felt. And so lost in that sometimes is the motivation or the understanding about some of these things. And that's across the, uh, the racial uh, line. So it's not just one race, or, but that's across the line. So I think faith leaders have a role in terms of being able to kind of help educate people on that, bring people together. And just to be, again, to do some of the things that Danielle do is it's an, bring people together to hear what's going on, to get an understanding of what it is so that you can take whatever position you're going to take, but take a position based on what you know and what you've heard and how it's relevant. Yeah. I'll, I'll just put forward this thought um, with the, the faith leaders. I think one of the things that we found out in our partnership with faith leaders has been that um, COVID did really put a spotlight on some of the things that they never thought they would have to do, like doing live, um, ser you know, sermons from, you know, uh, virtually and things of that nature. Um, and it showed that they're going to have to connect to their, um, their, their flock in a little bit of a different way. And so we've been partnering, trying to make sure that uh, community members in, in the different churches have the technology technological understanding of being able to use their laptop or use their computer or use their tablet so that they can figure out how to, to be able to, to connect with their church members. Um, a lot of, uh, they, you know, they've had to do a lot of things to keep connected to them because they haven't been able to, to be around each other in the way they, they would normally be. And I think it just puts a spotlight on the fact that um, faith leaders have to, to examine, you know, uh, how they can partner with other entities like the library to, to make sure that they um, they enlighten and enrich their community. Understand. So how can philanthropic support the collaboration between being led by the Cleveland Public Library and advance justice? Anyone can answer. Wait a minute. Could you read that again? I'm trying to understand. Sure. I may, may have missed the idea of that question. No problem, sorry about that. How can philanthropic support the collaboration being led by the Cleveland Public Library to advance justice? Uh, um, we um, believe that there's a lot of areas for philanthropic support around this, because I think what the, the you, you started to see out of the funders is they would like to see a, a bigger collaborations coming around. And you've seen that in what is being done currently by the Cleveland Foundation around digital equity where they brought 80, 80 different um, ec um, digital equity um, organizations together and started talking about how do we create a ecosystem to make sure that our community is never seen as the third worst connected city in the country. And so there are many different avenues that we can do around that. We need to do that around just basic literacy and, and, and recognizing how can we make sure that we are not a, a space in which 67% of our community has seen as functionally illiterate. Um, so there are many avenues that I think we will be bringing convenings together and that we can go and speak to our community, our, our funded community about how they can support it. And Felton, your organization is also working with um, community partners to help with the digital divide, like Peoples for PC. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, our community, one of the big things that we really want um, our community to understand is that if you have technological issues or you, you don't have access, come to the library and we will help you. Um, PCs for People, we work with them and they provide community members um, who are um, at low income with laptops or refurbished computers that they can, they can then use to be able to get access. Then we also work um, with them to check out MiFi's or hotspots so that they can be able to be at home and be able to get on the internet and do their work from there. So, you know, there is a lot of 
work that can be done. Um, there are a lot of ways we can help our, our young people, especially. And I know, Darrell, I'm going to ask you to, to really speak to, um, as a CMSD employee, right? I'm going to turn it on you because your institution is a really important institution for opportunity and fairness for our kids. And I just wanted to make sure before we ended this that you had an opportunity to speak a little bit about how CMSD is working for opportunities and fairness for our young people and their parents. <laughs> well, Felton, I'm, I'm a, I am the moderator, but I will become a fan of the podcast. But, you know, CMSD has worked tirelessly since the pandemic to make sure that the students, the more than 37,000 students have one-to-one -one, uh, laptops and computers so that they can learn from home. And they have worked with Digital C to do hotspots and to get um, internet access into those homes. Um, and so they have worked tirelessly to make sure that um, our students have access to computers and hotspots and also that the parents have it. Because obviously when there's a computer now in the home, parents can now use it for things that you've already mentioned when it comes to healthcare or telehealth or to apply for a job or to, for services. So, um, you know, CEO Eric Gordon has worked very hard on this and he's making it so that, um, you know, once the child graduates there, you know, maybe they don't give the computer back. So I think, you know, they worked very hard to make sure that everyone has um, access to the internet and to computers. And this goes to, I think what Jeff was, was talking about is that collectively there's so much that we're all doing in our organizations but we've got to find a way to create an ecosystem around that so that everyone knows that work that's being done and that we're not, you know, you know, you know, doing doing the other's work. Right. I mean, there's a lot of spaces for us to partner around that and be able to celebrate those things that are happening. I mean, it, it there was a lot of work. I, you know, I've had conversations with Eric around all of the work that needed to be done and all of the money that needed to be found to make sure that every child was able to have one-to-one -one support at home and be able to get online, right? Um, and still, even then, it's a struggle every day, I know, for parents and others. And so our job then is to make sure those parents don't have the kids who are trying to get help on, on things aren't, you know, feeling like they can't help them because they don't know how to use those computers. And then one, one, fi one final point on this, if you look at this and just what's been said in the last you know, uh, five or 10 minutes. I mean, you look at the people who are being assisted and you look at how they're being assisted. You have Felton uh, saying that, okay, I have a library, you know, and, and people could come in and, and get digital services there. You have uh, CMSD and CMSD is saying, okay, we're going to be providing um, digital uh, equipment and digital training for people. You have CMHA who is launching an initiative to try to get uh, our properties connected, both our family properties as well as our high-wise property. And then you have someone uh, like Danielle who is able to connect with community folks at all different levels to make them aware of what's going on. So there is a, a, a platform and there is a, a, a plan and Digital C and Ashbury Group and um, the Cleveland Foundation and the Digital Literacy uh, Committee that's out there. There are a lot of people that are working on this. So it's, it's exciting. But the, but the task is just so significant, but we just got to keep pecking away at it because the, the gap has to close in order for us to be able to make the impact that we want to make. And that's important for me as someone that is uh, handling affordable housing, but it's important for all of us. But then, so my question is then, how do you break down those silos so that all, you know, all the organizations that need to be at the table are at the table and they're having these conversations, one, so that there's not duplication of efforts, but then also that people can work together um, because, you know, there's number, there's power in numbers. So if, you know, the city or the, the county sees that, you know, all these organizations are fighting for this one cause, then maybe they'll, you know, look and say, we need to do something. I think you're starting to see that. I think you're starting to see that, you know, with some of the leadership that uh, the Cleveland Foundation has done in terms of kind of pulling together a lot of these different groups. Uh, the one thing about technology is that there's no one answer to every community. So what you may be able to do in this community, you may have to use this. What you may be able to do in this community, you may have to use that. But you have to be willing and flexible to have a plan to want to, at the end of the day, 
the service is the most important thing to the individual, not who's before, not the turf stuff, but making sure that the actual commitment and the service to the to the uh, residents and to the community is what's at the focus. And that's where I think we're kind of moving more so in that direction now. And but, Daniel, can, can I can I of course add to that? I think you asked me about the philanthropic community, and I think this is one of those answers for what the philanthropic community can do. I can come to, together and I can bring together Jeff and Danielle and Marsha Mockaby, who we want to thank and hopefully we pray for that everything is safe with her and, and, and a, a lot of other folks. But the reality of it is the philanthropic community can bring more people together quicker because ultimately all of our organizations are built off of a need for funding. And so the philanthropic community can say, we want to have this discussion around this and we're going to start bringing these folks together to really work on some of these issues uh, and, and serve as the convener because then when you serve as a convener, you can start to bring everybody together. They will come because there is money there, right? And, and, and that's not saying that there are folks who wouldn't come together because as you could see, um, there are folks who really care about the community here and will will do that work. But until we get those other um, the other community organizations that you talked about, Daryl, who might be Daryl, who might be sitting in the way, who not might not be willing to help. The only thing that's going to bring them to the table is the opportunity for additional funding. And I would add to that, Felton. Um, you think about the the funding aspect, but there's also just a tremendous amount of influence that the philanthropic organizations have. And if we think about how quickly the Digital Equity Coalition came together and how quickly it became a prominent focus of so many corporations, uh, so many nonprofit organizations, it really kind of jumped ahead of some other work, in my opinion. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing, but people who maybe were not paying attention to the plight of redlining digitally in the city of Cleveland had a very you know quick aha moment when kids couldn't get on the internet, even if we paid for them to have computers. And so I think that what it demonstrates is we can quickly come together around topics that we all believe in. And so how do we convince people to believe in more topics? Because we've determined and we've demonstrated that we can come together. And so I think it's a matter of broadening the types of things that we come together for and how long we stay together to work towards, you know, the complete solutions. And just one other thing, I mean, when you when you talk about the digital divide, um, you know, and this is obviously became very glaring during the pandemic, but when is it going to be that digital access is going to be a necessity and not a luxury? I mean, it's 2021 and we all need the Internet and the Internet's been around for decades. So why, why are we still viewing it as, as a luxury? Well, I think that COVID was the first step in bringing that reality to so many people. Because uh, right now, the thing that I think people like to do more, which was that that interaction, we were prevented from doing that. And we had to begin to invest. Everyone had to begin to invest in technology to be able to uh, be able to effectively get things done. So I think hopefully you're going to see that continue to build over the next few years. I mean, you don't want to just do this investment and then walk away from it. You know, I think that you can really efficiently get a lot of things done. And it's and it's really important, especially in the area of education. You know, you need to be able to have access to the Internet at home, at school, wherever you are. That's it's, it's, as, it's as important as having a, a refrigerator or stove in your house. It's 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 that important. And I, hopefully, you know, through this COVID process, there are a lot of takeaways from this. Hopefully people realize the importance of having connectivity, particularly in the communities that we all serve. And if I can just tee up Danielle on this, because I'll start it and I'll let Danielle end it. But I, I think one of the issues is like when you're sitting in a room and, and um, someone will say, you know, 40% of the, of the city of Cleveland doesn't have access to, to internet access. And people will be just like the draws of drop and they were like, like, where have you been? This has been like this for 10 years. Or you say 40% of the community is in, living in poverty and people will like, I didn't know that. I, I'm shocked by that. And you're like, where have you been? And I think Jeff is right. COVID like really opened the eyes of so many people to the thought that, you know, um, there is a lot of inequity there, but it hasn't been, it's been this way for a lot of years. 
it didn't just just pop up. This didn't just happen. So you know, I, I turned that over to Danielle. You 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 said it perfectly. You know, <laughs> and I know we're about to close. And I would just mm -hmm. add that in our country, we've gotten to a place where if things don't directly impact you, they don't exist. And so. Uh, what's happened now is when you ask why isn't the internet considered a necessity because there are many people who can access it and have multiple providers that they get to pick and choose from. And so to believe and to think that there are literally people that don't have access to internet or they only get a certain limited uh, kind of quality product, people are really dumbfounded. They just can't believe it's still happening. And so I think, again, these the types of forums are important because while we think everybody has, is woke and has arrived, we know that there are many people that still need to hear this information. Well, with that, we're going to have to leave this conversation here, even though we could talk about this all afternoon. But I do want to thank the panelists and thanks for celebrating Cleveland Public Library's Founders Day with us. And we've been discussing how to usher in a new era of justice in Cleveland with Jeffrey Patterson, Chief Executive Officer and Safety Director for the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, Danielle Sidnor, President of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. She's also founder with and founder and CEO of We Win Strategies Group, and Felton Thomas, CEO and Executive Director of the Cleveland Public Library. Today's forum is the Stephen A. Mentor Endowed Forum made possible by the generous endowment gift from the five member banks of the Cleveland Foundation. Mr. Mentor spent his life in pursuit of justice. He was the first African-American to lead the Cleveland Foundation, the Cuyahoga County Welfare Department, Massachusetts Public Welfare Commission, and and what's now the American Public Human Services Association. He was also the founding undersecretary of the U.S. Department of Education. We are grateful to the banks who endowed this forum and to the Mentor family for their longstanding support of the City Club. Community partners for today's forum include the Cleveland branch of the NAACP, the Cleveland Public Library, Third Space Action Lab, and the Urban League of Greater Cleveland. All City Club virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to the generous support of Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in support the, the City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member to the City Club at cityclub.org. I'm Darielle Snipes. Thanks for joining us today with this online forum, and it is now adjourned. <laughs>